Welcome to Northern Overexposure Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the 1990s uh, television series Northern Exposure. My name is Lee. My name is Charles. And we're here to overanalyze the show. Uh, also, we're here to, to introduce the show to new people. Um, I guess that's kind of a bit of a lie, because this episode, our, our guest, who would normally be someone who has never seen the show before, on today's episode, our guest is someone who is quite familiar with the show, um, sort of an acquaintance, a friend who heard about the podcast. I heard about his enjoyment of Northern Exposure. Yeah. Do you mind explaining the six degrees of Kevin Bacon that you know him? Yeah. No, yeah. He's my girlfriend's friend's boyfriend. Does that make sense? <laughs> but we're friends through that, uh, you know, through that leap. Through that leap. I, I love that chain of sequence of events in order to get him onto the podcast. Like that's, this is how we're associated so, with yeah, this person. Yeah. So that'll be for the end of the episode. But I guess since we're talking about it, I'll put the front. Um, and you've probably read in the title of this episode, uh, our, our special guest today is Brent. And at the end of the episode, he's going to give his sort of analysis, his short critique of the episode, and we'll be able to comment on that later. But uh, what episode are we talking about today, Charles? We're talking about Animals Are Us. The fourth episode of season three. That's right. Animals Are Us. I guess like Toys Are Us. Yeah, with an R, like the letter R, not <laughs> yeah. R as in like a pirate's R and or the... What is an R? Like a, is that R a, is like the plural of uh, is. What, what is the... Is that called like an article? Uh, I don't man, I don't even know. Ah, oh, geez. Uh, it's been so long since elementary grammar school. <laughs> but not that one either. R Us, yeah. Like the toys, except um, ostriches in this case in this episode. Well, and dogs too. Yeah, uh, that's true. Um, okay, where should we start here? What? Let's start... Sorry to... Sorry. I, I know exactly where I want to start. Uh-huh. Um, this is something that we haven't touched on yet this season, but... It's a big change. Um, well, first off, this episode, the fourth episode, is the first in this season to start with the theme song. Every other episode has begun with like a little opening gambit scene, and then it would go to th- theme song. Yeah, I noticed that. There's no cold open for this, for this episode. One. Yeah. Is this the very first time it's happened? Of this season, yes. Um, but there have been plenty of episodes in the first and second season where it just starts straight away with the uh, theme song. There's a lot of opening gambits, too, in the first and second season. But uh, anyway, this episode, actually this entire season so far, I don't know if you caught it, but if you stay past the end credits, it's a new still image. Did you see this? Wait, what? No, I so always we, close it whenever I see it. Is it going to produce Joshua Brand and John Felsey? Yeah. So, so this is something we talked about a lot on the podcast, the image that they use in the first and second season um, to close out the show during the credits is uh, this image of Joel and Marilyn walking back to his office. And we've talked about it again and again. We don't need to continue um, exploring that that image. But the image now, I don't know if you can pull it up on your uh, I'm doing on your it screen. Right now. It's uh, Rosalind Cafe with the moose um, from the opening theme song. He's kind of like scr- scrunched up against the wall of Rosalind Cafe. It's not, I mean, equally uh, not an interesting image as, as the um, Joel and Marilyn, but... I don't know. I feel betrayed. I really liked the Joel and Marilyn image and, and how much weight I, I've given it in my own head. Yeah, I got to say, I, I like the old one more than this one. This one seems like something that corporate would do. Yeah. I don't know what happened, but uh, again, this is the first season to sort of adopt the full season order of episodes. What is it? 23 episodes as compared to eight or seven. So. Mm-hmm. Things are changing, um, for better or for worse. I think um, maybe for better. This show's, show's exploring some new, some new things. Let's talk about plot. Where do we start? Well, I think that the main plot line is the one that I stumbled upon. How many episodes ago? Two episodes ago? Uh, yeah, in, in the in the uh, pilot, or sorry, <laughs> the first episode of this season. Yeah, where I had said Rick was a dog, as in a man who has affairs. Yeah, uh, and he's actually a dog. Now. He's actually a dog. <laughs> Dog Watch 2019. Uh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, what kind of dog is Rick? I couldn't tell. I actually spent a good amount of time trying to look into that. I I want to say it's like an Alaskan Malamute mutt. Okay, like some type of... Yeah, so Joel says Malamute in the episode, but he also is known to say a lot of things. He also calls it a mutt as well. Okay, there you go. Ed says... Uh, there's a funny scene where Ed... What is it? Uh, Shelly's like, Ed, you're an Indian. Is Rick a dog? <laughs> like he would know. Um, and Ed was like, I'm not really sure, but uh, 
If I had to imagine Rick as a dog, he would be a terrier. A terrier. Yeah. And I, I could see that a little. Really? I, I don't know. What kind of dog do you think Rick is? Mm, or what kind of dog do you think Rick should be? Rick should be. Ah, uh, definitely not a small one like a terrier. Most <laughs> terriers are really small unless you're talking that's, about like I don't know, like true. an Airedale terrier or something like that, which is like a medium-sized <laughs> breed. Uh, I would have imagined him. Uh, he looks like an everyman, but like a handsome everyman. So maybe like a retriever. <laughs> Okay. Or, uh, yeah, 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 like a Labrador, something that like that. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like an all-American. Yeah, that seems like out. something that's like right up Rick's alley. You know, this is actually really interesting. None of we're on this discussion. I mean, do you know enough about dog breeds to guess what Joel would be? I don't know. No, I don't. You're, you're sort of the dog expert, but I'd like to hear your, um, your thoughts of uh, our main characters and what dog, what kind of dog they are. <laughs> you would have to, I would have to, we're gonna have to edit this out because I would have to look through a list of dog breeds. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Let's do it for the, uh, I'll do it as well. Let's do it for the season three retrospective <laughs> in like 20 episodes from now. Okay, we'll talk about what respective dogs each cast member would be. I'll do some research on that too because uh, <laughs> I've got to, maybe I can do cats and you can do dogs or something. Oh yeah, that's a really good idea. I don't really know much about either, but. All right, so this episode sort of begins with this dog walking around Sicily, kind of going through the main street. We follow him through a different, couple different camera angles, and it bumps into Ed and kind of barks at Ed, and Ed converses with the dog a little bit. He says, oh, rough to you too. <laughs> and then we leave the dog and follow Ed inside Ruth Ann's store, where she is stocking Progresso chicken and escarole cans of soup. The escarole, um, I've never heard of that. Apparently, it's a type of endive, like a, like a no, lettuce. No, I had to look that up as well. I've never heard of that either. But I was also looking up Progresso. And did you know that Progresso was founded in New Orleans? What, really? Yeah, I had no idea. What year was that? Mm, yeah, they were founded in 1925. Interesting. New Orleans, Louisiana. That's crazy. Yeah, it used to be a heavy hitter, apparently, in the soup industry until Campbell started coming out with their Chunky line. Mm. That was a game changer. They couldn't compete against that. <laughs> when did Campbell's come out with Chunky? This seems so uh, so much older than, than I would expect. <laughs> Way earlier than I thought. 1970. Oh, wow. Well, you know, Progresso being a 19... It was like 50 years after Progresso was uh, formed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, But I guess... Uh, Still overtaking the, the market. Yeah, Ruthann mentions that that type of soup is always sold out. And I thought that was going to be actually a main plot point in the episode, but yeah. they don't really return back to it. I don't really know. I think someone mentions the soup again later, maybe Maurice or something, but I don't really know what the context is uh, for the entire episode. Yeah, because it's not, she's like, during this season, like this seasonal period, mm -hmm. this uh, specific can of soup is um, frequently sold out. But well, at the end of the episode, I think a certain type of candy is sold out, right? What? Oh, let's see, because they're trying to buy popcorn. Candy and, into uh, Ed's movie. Yeah, what was it? What does um, Fleischman get? He gets milk duds instead. I'm trying to remember what was sold out. So it's gummy bears. That's what Ruthann is sold out of. And like you said, Fleischman gets milk duds instead. Maybe it's not so much a seasonal thing. Maybe it's just a testament to... Ruth Ann's store being so small and <laughs> often sells out. Mm, a lot or of so things. popular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you ever sneak candy into movie theaters? Oh yeah, I mean I still do. That's like the that's the play. That's the play. That's how you do it. There used to be a Dollar General in the next yeah. to the movie theater yeah. uh, where we grew up at and I would always go to the Dollar General and go buy the candy aisle. And yeah, I go to candy aisle and then it was a dollar so and then mm -hmm. I would just go there and then sneak it into a jacket. And then Which is what they're doing I guess in this episode they go to the general store buy yeah. some popcorn buy some candy. Uh, maybe it's because the, the town is so small and the, the little cinema their, their movie theater maybe it doesn't have a concession stand but uh, maybe they're also hip to this, uh, this play and they do the same thing they just like <laughs> buy the cheaper stuff at Ruth Ann's. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's get to the dog, right? We, we kind of started there. Rick is a dog. How does that happen? So this dog finds Maggie and sort of, at first Maggie tries to shoo it away. The dog decides to rest outside of Maggie's fence. And what happens? Um, how does she come around to it? I know she brings the dog to Joel's office. I think she becomes attached to it whenever it keeps begging to be inside Maggie's house. Mm -hmm. And she takes it to Joel's offices and... I mean, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but it looks like she grows even more attached to it after it, it tries to bite Joel. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Joel is not a veterinarian. He agrees to, uh, I guess, see if he can determine the health of the dog. And uh, it bites him. It bites him. And 
and after that scene, Joel has just a hilarious bandage on his hands. Like, I don't know, multiple fingers are wrapped in gauze and the hand itself is wrapped in gauze. I don't know how this dog could have done that much damage uh, from what we saw on camera, but yeah. What are some of the clues, some of the context clues that sort of cement the idea that this dog is is Rick. Yeah, there's a bunch of small correlations that point to Rick being reincarnated as this dog. Like, it doesn't <laughs> like green peppers. It yeah. follows Maggie around. It likes being rubbed in the same area that Rick likes being rubbed. It's like um, it sits in Rick's stool at the brick, and it eats the beef jerky that only Rick would eat. Apparently, it's very, very tough beef jerky. Yeah, but all dogs like beef jerky. I don't <laughs> exactly. understand that. What is the other thing too? Uh, yeah, the you said the green peppers. Like Maggie makes dinner with this dog, and she's kind of talking to it like a human, and she prepares. I think she calls it devil's mess eggs, which is uh, it seems like a recipe, sort of like an omelet or um, just like scrambled eggs with sausage and peppers, different things in their spinach. Sometimes I, I think it's just kind of a catch-all term for scrambled eggs. Like you said, the dog does not eat the green peppers. And Rick never did either. But I think Maggie even calls herself out. She says, wow, that's interesting. You're not eating the peppers, just like Rick. Rick wouldn't eat the peppers. She's like, it's because you're a dog. Dogs don't eat peppers. Like she's trying to like catch herself. <laughs> but um, I don't know. The similarities keep coming up. And I think it even, I think the, the convincing point is she looks straight at the dog and says, if you're Rick, bark three times. And it does. Right? Yeah. I mean, she still gives him a signal to bark like, I think I trained my dog to do that as well. Like uh-huh. if I ended a sentence in a questioning tone, it would bark. Yeah. So and, it, and you know, three times that seems very accurate. But what could have happened is it barks. It wants to keep barking, but after the third bark, Maggie says something. She's like, "Oh wow, you really are Rick." So she's like, you know, the bar- <laughs> the dog might have kept barking if she didn't talk. You know, yeah. might have barked four or five times. What a well-trained dog, though. Yeah, no, it's, dog actor. there's really great dog acting. I think there's the scene when, I don't remember, there's a scene on the porch where the dog is like acting very shy, kind of lowering its head. Um, oh, it's a dream that she has where the dog is actually talking with Rick's voice. Yeah. And it in the first couple shots, um, its mouth actually opens, you know, and they dub the line that Rick would say. Um, but then Rick is just talking freely and the dog is kind of like breathing and like licking its lips and... Great dog yeah. acting. I can you imagine pulling in the actor that plays Rick and saying like, "Hey, we need you back for this episode. <laughs> you play a dog. I mean, like an actual dog. You're reincarnated as a dog. It's just your voice. You're gonna sit in the sound booth. Yeah, I was thinking about that, but I also something tells me, I don't know. You know, maybe Rick got the short end of the stick in season two, but I, I feel like he was happy to do it. Or I don't know. I'd like to believe that he had a lot of fun. With yeah. This I, mean, wacky I think I show. would too. If I got yeah. called in to do that. It's like, wait, so I'm a dog now. Okay. I'll go for it. You know, <laughs> I actually don't know that many of famous dogs. Like I was trying to think of it for this episode. Mm-hmm. I know Rin Tin Tin is something that uh, Joel brings up. Yeah. That's a famous one. The dog in wizard of Oz. That's really Toto. famous. Okay. Toto. Uggy from, I, I want to say, what is that film from 2012? The Master? Oh, wait. Artist, the artist. The artist, okay. Yeah, and uh, my personal favorite, Spuds McKenzie. Yeah, Spuds McKenzie. <laughs> uh, Lassie is another famous Lassie, dog. yeah, that's another one. There, there's been plenty of uh, dog celebrities. Airbud, the whole Airbud uh, uh, yeah. this series. Uh, I once heard a really great joke once where they said, um, do you know how I know that Yao Ming is a basketball sensation? Because there have been more movies about dogs playing basketball than Asians playing basketball. <laughs> well, <laughs> so let's see, where were we? We were talking about Maggie's dream of the dog talking with Rick's voice. She wakes up and the next morning she's... I guess um, preparing uh, breakfast for the dog or something. She actually is like pouring it beer. You're going to give a dog beer? No, you absolutely cannot. Like I know beer is poison to humans. So like what what is it for a dog? (laughs) Yeah, she should be trialed for uh, animal. (laughs) PETA, let's get PETA in here. (laughs) Um, It's funny. Chris is on the radio and he dedicates a song to Maggie on the air. It's the song is My Boyfriend's Back. What's the other thing? There's another famous song in this episode when Maggie is having sort of the dancing picnic montage. (laughs) That looks like a Zoloft commercial. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it's the Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin. That's it. Yeah. yeah. They're like playing Frisbee. Uh, she's got her summer dress on and they're like drinking wine. Again, the dog is drinking <laughs> wine, more alcohol for the dog. It's a quite a ridiculous uh, little montage. I think they were on paper. It sounded pretty funny, but it's just pretty wacky. This is this is getting. Is this jumping the shark as much as um, the adult adoption of Chris? Uh, or no, actually, <laughs> somehow this feel this feels northern exposure ish. Yeah. I don't think it's like so outlandish, like sitcom outlandish. Because th- this is not like a standard sitcom escapade where it's yeah. like, oh, your uh, past significant other is morphed into a dog. No. This, yeah, this is very <laughs> out of the box and strange. Um, you're right. And after this, Maggie um, enters into the brick and sits down with Joel. She's just having like a great time. And Joel just can't believe it. Just can't believe that. Uh, what does he say? He says something to the effect of like, it's disgusting for a grown woman to take a dog as her life partner, things like that. And bestiality <laughs> is mentioned and yeah, it's, I don't know. This is a strange plot line. Yeah, though I never took it as literally her life partner. Like I think yeah. Maggie is just enjoying the company of the dog, but not romantically. She definitely gets to hash out some, some of the closure, yeah. un- unresolved issues to the dog. And it's good because she can talk it out and she doesn't have to actually hear Rick talking back to her. She can kind of really let um, all of her feelings out and kind of process that. You know, on that note, I had some thoughts about this of overanalyzing, but I don't know if this fits into the character of Maggie. So do you think that Maggie would enjoy her significant others being as submissive as a dog? Hmm. I don't know. I I mean, that's like she can project whatever quality she wants onto the dog because it can't talk back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't think Maggie is that type of person. I don't think anyone is that type of person. I can see that being like um, maybe what happens in some relationships. Um, it, bec- it becomes that way. But no, I think everyone, uh, if they're really looking for love, it's, you know, they're not looking for just to be constantly reaffirmed, you know? Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I didn't think it fit into the character of Maggie, so I didn't think I was going in the right direction for this over-analysis, but it was just a thought that I popped into my brain. And like she she catches herself, uh, Maggie catches herself at one point and says, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm waiting hand and foot on this dog. Like, you know, I'm treating you so nice, Rick. Like, I don't, I don't you don't deserve this. You know, why am I doing this? And, you know, she kind of breaks up with the dog. It comes back later. We're kind of jumping around this plot line, but the real idea around it is, I guess, what we're talking about. Sort of like Maggie hashing Mm -hmm. out this relationship with Rick and how, you know, she has like the second chance, but it's not really worth it. And in in the end, like it doesn't work out, you know. Wait, hang on. What if we turn this on its head then uh, about what I said earlier? What if... Maggie is treating this dog so kind and with so much love when in return, Rick and, you know, human Rick, you know, as far as we can tell, didn't treat her very fairly because he had cheated and had affairs with other women. So I'm not saying that Rick is subhuman and that he's a dog. I'm just saying that like the power dynamic is not equal within their past relationship and it's still not equal on this one. Now, I'm not saying that Maggie had all the power and therefore that makes Rick the dog. Just in terms of the entire thing, it was never a good match to begin with. Mm, Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, yeah, it was always, it was some sort of weird imbalance with the relationship. It wasn't really, I don't know, wasn't really the right thing. Mm -hmm, Yeah, and she's waiting hand and foot on someone that is not decently human to her. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense and obviously like, you know, the metaphor isn't lost on us. The Rick is a dog, you know, he's <laughs> yeah. sort of a womanizer, but then also he's a literal dog. Um, but it's interesting, the sort of the owner of the dog, and I think there's a, Chris puts out a bulletin on the radio asking for the owner of the dog to come contact Maggie if, you know, anyone's missing a dog. The owner, I think, drove like 400 miles to come pick up her dog. Yeah, I couldn't believe the dog walked 400 miles. It's insane. That is some Balto stuff right yeah. there. <laughs> The dog's name, she she calls him Butchie, and apparently this has happened a lot, or this is just a thing that Butchie does. She she says Butchie's uh, a total mooch, and yeah, this sort of um, disenchants the whole sort of magic that you know we believe this dog was Rick, but according to its owner, this is just a, her dog Butchie. But um, yeah, I mean, at the very end, Maggie says the dog was Rick. You can't convince me otherwise. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like I, whatever, you know, maybe you're right. I needed to like get through something, 
But whatever you say, Joel, like this dog was Rick. You'll you'll never understand. There might be some correlation between Maggie's lesson and the lesson of plot B as okay. well. I'll try to tie it in when we get there. Well, I think we're just about um I guess there's one other thing I, I could mention about um the dog Rick plot line before we jump on, but um we'll tie it in real fast. Uh, there's there's a scene where Joel is about to see a patient. It's a couple of uh, Native American men. I think they're sitting with Marilyn and kind of chatting. Joel enters and he's asking them about sort of the imagery of uh, reincarnation and, and a human coming back uh, to be reincarnated as a dog, if that's common in Native American folklore. Apparently the souls of the dead often appear in the guise of a wolf, especially if they leave Earth with unresolved issues. That's what one of the patients says uh, in this little conversation. Um, but I liked what Joel, there's a phrase that I had to, I had to really search for. Joel says, uh, or he asks, is the Malamute Rick or is it Memorex? And Memorex is a brand that I recognize, but I, I didn't really get the, the saying. So do you, are you familiar with Memorex? No, not at all. What is that? Memorex is like a brand of uh, media, like computer tape or CDs, DVDs, flash drives, like floppy disks, things like that, like stuff that you would save media to. Say the word one more time. Memorex. It's that's a brand not, name. That's not Miramax, is it? No, no, no. Memor- okay, got Memorex. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I understood the brand, but I didn't really understand the saying. But apparently, uh, this is pulled from Wikipedia. So Memorex had um, one of its uh, first advertisements, um, first like ad campaign, is uh, this series where they would feature Ella Fitzgerald, you know, the jazz singer, and she's like singing a note and it shatters a glass. Like mm-hmm. she's singing the right pitch, the right volume, and the glass shatters. And then they immediately, um, they have that recorded onto tape and they press play onto the tape and the tape is playing through a speaker that shatters the glass the same way. Hmm. And it says, is it live or is it Memorex? Ah, uh, that's some... And that's like the slogan they adopted. That is some wordplay that did not age into 2019. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's completely lost. Like, <laughs> that is I archaic. Knew, I knew there was some sort of, uh, it was like a phrase that I was, mi- there was some sort of meaning to that That line. is clever, though. I really like that. Is it Malamute Rick or is it Memorex? <laughs> you got to bring it back. Yeah. I think I was talking to you about this off the air, but I was a, I keep getting this stuck in my head about old, you know, speaking of old ad jingles, yeah. I had the Calgon one stuck in my head. Calgon, yeah. Yeah. But ancient, that's the one, the ancient Chinese. <laughs> yes. How did that come up? Um, was that, did that pertain to our last episode or? Uh, a little bit. It's because you were having throat troubles. Oh, and yeah, I was talking so about, I keep air. my medicine in this medicine cabinet. It's also filled with ancient Chinese secret. Ergo, Calgon. <laughs> yeah. I guess since we're on the topic, um, yeah, I've been. I don't know if you guys have noticed in this in this season. I've had some allergic reactions, and <laughs> my throat has been very hoarse in a lot of these recordings. But uh, since we're on the topic, tell us about the Calgon commercial. Oh God, it's fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was in 1970. Yeah, it was from the early 1970s where it started out on a Chinese laundry somewhere in any town, USA, and a customer comes up and asks the proprietor of the laundry establishment, an Asian man. And she says, how do you get your shirt so clean? And then he puts a finger to his lips and he says, with a little bit of a small Chinese accent, ancient Chinese secret. And then the scene goes to his wife, who's speaking in a perfect Midwestern accent. It goes, my husband, some hotshot, here's his ancient Chinese secret, Calgon. <laughs> Shows it, and it's got like that old 1970s font. Yeah. It's like, mix Calgon with like detergent, and it creates this product, and it's <laughs> fantastic. And I thought, what a clever ad to play on stereotypes, but it is reversing it, so it's not actually like mean-spirited in any way. <laughs> I guess, yeah. But you also mentioned there's like an SNL um, sketch that I, that I really love. <laughs> yeah, there was an SNL parody with Jackie Chan when he hosted it in 2000, and it plays out like the original commercial, except that the man coming up to the counter is saying, hmm, ancient Chinese secret, huh? And then Jackie Chan attacks him and says, you tell anyone in the world that it's a secret and you're a dead man. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, I cannot find that clip online. I think it's been buried deep in NBC archives. Oh, yeah. NBC is very protective of uh, their content. So there's a neat trick if your dog ever gets lost, like the owner of Butch. I don't know if you know this, Lee, but the way Mm. to get your dog to come back to you if he runs away is to take an article of clothing that's laden with your scent, like Mm -hmm. something you wore all the time, and put it out in your front yard because dog scent is their ability for smelling smelling is ridiculous. Wow. And then they'll be able to smell that old article of clothing and they'll be able to find their way back home. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe um, maybe uh, this dog owner should have uh, taken some of that advice. But yeah, four hundred miles. Yeah, four hundred miles. It's ridiculous. Ah, oh, jeez. Mm. All right. Well, let's um, let's jump into another plot line here. Let's go into the ostrich farming. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's do that one next. Yeah. So that plot line is very strange, even for Northern Exposure caliber. Yeah. The idea of this plot line is that Marilyn owns an ostrich farm and she's been owning it for quite some time, apparently. Yeah, no one really... Oh, wait, how is it? It's because Maurice finds an ostrich egg at Ruth Ann's store and he questions, it's like, you know, ostrich eggs are pretty big. I actually, I, I looked them up online. They're big eggs, but this one's like football size, like huge dinosaur yeah, yeah. size. And he comes across uh, Marilyn's farm, which is, she's had from... I don't know how long. I don't know if it's established how long she's had it, but a good enough time where she has a rapport and a relationship with, with ostriches, ostriches and their children and their grandchildren <laughs> and the whole lineage of ostriches. So she's able to get these eggs so large because she cares for them specially. Like she sits next to them whenever yeah. they eat. I think the vibe is like she's always sitting in her chair knitting and that, you know, she's kind of like there and that's what, that personal connection is what uh, makes their eggs uh supernaturally larger Mm -hmm. i can kind of buy into that because i think i read somewhere and anytime you say the phrase i think i read somewhere it's almost entirely false (laughs) but let's assume for the premise that it's true that if you treat cows really kindly like if you massage them and you Mm. brush them and you pet them and treat them with love and kindness they have better milk Milk. or like the i guess yeah if an animal is happy you know it's probably healthier you know and hopefully uh Generates more healthier product. Yeah, it kind of just makes sense, though, if you stop to think about that. Like, we shouldn't have to write a report. Like, science shouldn't have to go <laughs> hire, like, Brookings Think Tank to look into this. It's like, yeah, if you out. don't beat your animal, <laughs> it, it does. It, its life is better and its products is better. And so uh, Maurice, you know, being sort of the savvy businessman that he is, um, approaches Marilyn with an offer. Uh, actually, they're, they're kind of like, eventually he gets Marilyn to come over to his place and... They're having a very exquisite sort of salmon dinner or lunch at this, you know, the ridiculously long dinner table where yeah, they're sitting at either end. That's different from the table that was shown in the first episode of this season, though. Oh, when he was um, whining and dining uh, Shelly and Holling? Yeah. He must have multiple dining rooms. How? <laughs> How does he have multiple dining rooms He's and for what rich, purposes? You know, Alaskan magnet, you know, I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I kind of like that scene. It's very long and drawn out, and essentially what's happening is uh, Maurice is being very, very business forward and kind of pushy in a way, but you can tell Marilyn is um, monosyllabic, like not super responsive. She's not turning him down, but you know, she's just like kind of enjoying her stuff. And I like the kind of turn that it takes because um, so the conversation is pre- is pretty cool here. Uh, basically, Maurice is you know talking about the business. He asks, "Are you interested?" Marilyn says, maybe. And Maurice asks, you like money, don't you? And Marilyn replies with like a little bit of a smirk. She says, everybody likes money. And and I think that's a really cool sort of beat at the end of the scene. Because the whole time she's sort of resisting him. And you can tell that there's sort of like a bit of a slick, savvy, sinister uh, plan that they're going to concoct together to kind of turn this ostrich farm into a booming business. Hmm, that's really interesting because I actually did not read the scene the same way that you had read it. Mm. When I read the line, the way she delivered it, saying everybody likes money, I thought she was kind of being dismissive. Writing him off, yeah. Yeah, and it's a neat, clever, slick way of replying back, like saying, like, everybody likes money. Come on, don't say that. You're trying to generalize me and say that's a special thing? Like, no. Yeah, Um, I guess it could be read either way. Regardless of how you read it, I think Marilyn, um, the actress that plays Marilyn, is doing a great job in Mm -hmm. this scene. Yeah, I agree. It's not a very intricate weaving plot. They start their business. Uh, it's funny because Maurice brings sort of like this giant cutout of, uh, it's just a giant like sort of cardboard cutout of Marilyn sitting in her uh, rocking chair and knitting. And he's like, okay, we can put this right in front of the ostriches and you can go do whatever you got to do. This way you'll be with them 24-7. <laughs> um, but... I don't know. Is there? I don't know. Maybe I'm skipping over stuff. But essentially, what happens is it does, it's not working. Like the ostriches are producing eggs the size of you know chicken eggs, like which are super small, supernaturally small for an ostrich. Apparently, the ostriches just don't like Maurice. Yeah, I didn't know if it was the simple lesson was really just surface level. Like you shouldn't treat something with commercial 
purposes, like expressly wanting to just make money, you yeah. need to treat it with love and passion and something that you genuinely care for. And that's an obvious lesson. And I don't know if that was the one they were just going for. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, you know, you described it. Marilyn is uh, treating them sort of like friends and uh, she's not asking for these giant eggs, but that's what they're giving her. And Maurice is um, treating it as something that can be profited from. And in return, he gets, uh, you know, chicken eggs. There is a scene, uh, I think right after this in the brick where Maurice is sitting with Joel and they're talking, Maurice is talking about being judged by the ostriches and Joel is talking about like sort of the dogs judging you. And, and I don't know if they really touch on anything super poignant, but they're having sort of a conversation about animals having this uh, sixth sense, then they can kind of like sniff out uncertainty in humans maybe. Mm-hmm. What did you get from from that whole dialogue? Pretty much what you had just said, that animals can detect uh, dishonesty or something that's just not true to the person. And I don't know how it plays out for the rest of the episode. Though. Like I don't know how it relates to as a yeah. whole. Uh, like other than the speak to character design being like, oh, well, like Maurice and Joel aren't true to their nature sometimes. Like, yeah, I, I, I kind of knew that already, though. It's a weird, um, it's a, yeah, it's this, this episode doesn't feel fully um, connected. Fleshed out. Yeah, connected to itself, fleshed out. Um, it's got a lot of different parts that are um, not necessarily adding up. Well, but I, go I, Okay, I thought of something to connect all the dots. I just okay. thought of it. So when we get to the last one, I'll try to okay, wrap it, up wrap it all around with a big old bow. <laughs> all right, well, that, that, I mean, that's pretty much all the ostrich business, right? Let's get on to Ed. We finally get Ed kind of back in his own you know, major plot. Um, this is, uh, he, he, he's been featured in the third season here, but, but not, uh, not in any major way. But now he's got his own plot line in this episode. I believe... It begins with him uh, getting a shipment. He's got his film back. It's like been developed. And he, what does he say? He's talking to Ruthann because that's where I guess all the mail comes. Mm-hmm. I thought it was it's, getting editing software. Um, no, no, no. He's getting his film back and he's going to start editing it. Mm. So it just got developed. Yeah, Ruthann's store is like a post office as well. I forget. It functions at And like everything. a bus station. because It sells pornography. <laughs> it sells food. It sells... Movies, uh, and, movies, uh, yeah, it does everything. Yeah, there it is. It is the mail too, because I remember they they go through mail through there. Anyway, it's funny. Ed and Ruthann have a conversation. Everyone in Sicily seems to be very well versed as like a film theorist and critic. <laughs> Ed is uh, talking about his film as being a neorealistic classic with influences uh, from Jean Luc Godard and Louis Malle. Ruthann is apparently very familiar with Louis Malle. She. She says she she likes the movie Murmur of the Heart and Le Calme Lucien. I haven't seen any of these movies. I've never even heard of any of these movies. But um, Louis Mal is, um, you might recognize, he's the director of My Dinner with Andre. Oh, really? Which, did you watch the deleted scenes for this episode? No, I always forget. Oh, wait, we're going to play it. I'll play it at the very right. end of this podcast. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The, it's just the scene that is the deleted scene for this episode is Ed's movie with Chris and... And Hauling. It's the movie that he's just gotten back um, mm-hmm. from Ruthann. And as we're about to talk about, he, he kind of abandons it. But the deleted scene is a conversation between Hauling and uh, Chris, and they're dressed exactly like the characters in My Dinner with Andre. <laughs> like one of them's got like the sports jacket and one of them's got like kind of the sweater. It's, it's pretty cool. So That's awesome. We'll what a great that. homage. <laughs> yeah, I'll show you that. We'll, we'll play it at the end. But before we move on from this Ruth Ann conversation, she, she says uh, the filmmaker you should really be watching, uh, looking out at is Spike Lee. He's got so much energy. And I can't remember if it's her or Ed, but they say about Spike Lee, you know, his, his, his amount of energy that they're saying like, oh, he'll, he'll probably grow out of that, you know, eventually in life. Mm-hmm. But I think Spike Lee is characteristically like very vocal and outspoken and gets into a lot of sort of like feuds. Oh, I think yeah. He's still got that energy. Absolutely. His films, um, actually, I was a big fan of Black Klansman, um, but I think like he's kind of petered out in the 2000s. But Black Klansman was a great return to form. I don't know if you ever got to see that one. No, I never did. Strong recommend. What was famous for Spike Lee in the era that they were filming Northern Exposure? Um, So do you remember in episode... Three, Soapy Sanderson, Chief Ronkonkomo is wearing a t-shirt that says, do the right thing. Oh, yeah. Early 90s, uh, <laughs> Spike Lee. You know, so do, right, do the right thing is sort of his, uh, his, his magnum, rise to fame? magnum opus, his r- rise to fame. Ah, okay. Yeah. 
yeah, so the next scene that we see with Ed is that he f- realizes when he's at the break with everyone else mm-hmm. that the film that he's been making has been complete doo-doo, according to him. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we were kind of alluding to. It's this film, apparently, that from context clues, we learned that Chris and Halling were acting in, um, and Ed is ready to can it. He's just going to throw it in the vault. And Chris and Halling feel a little bit of guilt, and Chris is trying to inspire Ed and, and try to make him feel better and, and have some more confidence in himself. Uh, the title of the film is Brink of Emptiness. Did you catch that? I did. That sounds really <laughs> artsy. An exploration of the meaning of life. Yeah, it is pretty pretentious and artsy. And the, in the uh, deleted scene, it's it's pretty pretty goofy. But I, I actually liked it. I think I would watch that movie <laughs> if, uh, if Ed made it, you know. And, and I like, uh, you know, we're jumping ahead again, but Ed does, in fact, uh, he gets... Uh, Reinspired and makes another film, which we see at the end of this episode. I like that film too. We can, we yeah, can t- it's a really sweet on one. I think there. there's nothing more heartbreaking than realizing that the project that you've been working on is not up to standards, but it's you that realizes that. It's not someone else that's pointing yeah. it out to you that says, like, oh, this art project that you're trying to make is not up to uh, par. It's you yourself. And that hurts when yeah. even you can see that what a lot you're of making times, is not good. A lot of times that's, you know, people don't recognize that. And it's years later, they're like, oh my God, my earlier films are so obnoxious, you know? Yeah, whatever piece of art that you cultivate in. And so it's like, you know, props to Ed for recognizing that in himself, but it must also be kind of a big, uh, big letdown. He mentions uh, cutting his losses he mentions Joel Silver's movie Hudson Hawk, which I haven't seen, but it's like this Bruce Willis movie. It's an absurd comedy that was like marketed as an action film. Mm-hmm. It came out a year after Die Hard, so it's Bruce Willis, you know, huge flop because people were expecting another action movie and it's just this wacky comedy apparently. Notoriously box office poison, just like not a great moneymaker. Oh, okay. <laughs> And yeah, maybe Ed's afraid that this film that he's he's made is just not going to be successful. He's cutting his losses. And the next time we see him, Joel is visiting him in his uh, shack, his apartment, his house. It's his house. Yeah. But it's like one, we only ever see one room. In his yeah, house. it's just his room, which <laughs> for all we know might actually just be it. Maybe he lives in a New York studio apartment situation. <laughs> I will say um, it's pretty... I mean, I got to criticize, like, there are uh, a couple shots in this scene when Joel opens the door. You can see outside, it's just like a completely fake, like, it looks like a fabric. Like, it's like, a, <laughs> it looks like clouds like that were printed on fabric. It looks really fake. The uh, outside of, I so didn't you can that. tell, you can tell that he's on a set. It's just when Joel enters and exits, like when he opens the door, oh, they open okay. it, they swing it too wide and you can, you can definitely see the, you can see the strings, you know? <laughs> We can see the magic behind the curtains right yeah. there. We know that we're watching a TV show. <laughs> but Joel is paying a house visit because Ed missed the screening of Wild Strawberries that that had happened the night before. That's a Bergman film, a uh, famous Bergman film, as we learned from their conversation. And Joel is um, he's just doing it out of the kindness of his heart, trying to... Um, comfort Ed, you know, and saying like, it's, it's normal. I believe he has the line. It's normal in a creative endeavor to be assailed by doubts. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, you know, surely like this, this movie is a lot better than you're giving yourself credit for. Uh, he asks, what's wrong with it? Well, I'll just, I'll just play the soundbite here. The movie's no good. It's garbage. Oh, what's wrong with it? Well, the idea, uh, huh. the script, uh, huh. and the execution. <laughs> I love that. Everything about it is Poor. just <laughs> disgustingly terrible. <laughs> Wild Strawberries, that's not the one where death is playing chess, right? No, that one's uh, the seventh seal. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Got it. Yeah, so we see that Joel's just trying to comfort him right there. And it turns out throughout as the scene plays that it is pen pals with Martin Scorsese. Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Carmen Coppola, and I'm not sure if he's pen pals with Steven Spielberg, but he does have Steven Spielberg's universal hat. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's like really funny and kind of like hard to believe, but yeah, I mean, like he's got letters from Scorsese and uh, from Woody Allen, I think, and it, you know, it's pretty cool. The letter from from Woody Allen is, I think it's just like a clipping from the script or from the the notes on the day of the set. Apparently that was like an improvised scene and 
Ed was saying, Woody wanted to show him that, you know, like a lot of things can be improvised. Like you don't have to necessarily plan it out. It's just like, this is what happens when you're making movies. Yeah. I had to look that up and it turns out that was entirely true. The lobster scene Mm. was entirely improvised. It was also the first scene that was shot for Annie Hall. Wow. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I would have to say that's probably... It's a very iconic scene. Yeah, so iconic. One of my favorite scenes from Annie Hall, Mm -hmm. I would have to say. I think everyone has probably like a favorite moment from Annie Hall. I would have to say it's one of those films where everyone enjoys Lots of iconic moments, yeah. Yeah. So what do we learn from the scene? I think at the end when Joel leaves, Ed says something like, you'll never know how much you've helped me, Dr. Fleshman. So yeah, it's, it's good to see that we've seen Ed comfort Joel a lot and it's good to see that Joel is like now, you know, Joel is in the first two seasons is characteristically he's trying to avoid Sicily and he's mm-hmm. like kind of this bah humbug character. But this is like, we can see now that Joel has friends. We've seen that he has friends and that he acknowledges that and he likes his friends now. Like he's going to visit Ed and hang out with them. Yeah. He does a house visit of mm-hmm. the friend kind. <laughs> of the friend nature. <laughs> yeah. So we get to the next scene where it's Ed with. Oh, like Woody? grandma Woody. Grandma Woody. Which yeah. doesn't make any sense. Cause Woody Allen's. Uh, last name isn't Woody, and his last name isn't even Alan. It's just Grandma Woody. It's just maybe old... that's her actual name, though. Maybe it's actually Grandma Woody. Hold up, I didn't even think about this. I forgot to like. I took a lot of notes on this scene, but um, yeah. What was that? Is that actually Woody Allen's grandma? Is that like a dream? Like, what's going? On? Wait, <laughs> that can be a dream sequence. I, I didn't know. realize. I thought it was actually. Who is that person? Is it like a? Uh, is it a member of the town, or is this I like thought a projection? It was like a, I thought it was a member of the town. It must be. Yeah, because they don't really play it off as a dream, or it's. I don't know. Well, Can't then be Woody again, Allen's they didn't really grandma. play off Rick Woody being Allen? a dog yeah. as a dream. And it's like they play that off. And they're like, ah, this happens, man. I get. I mean, we can agree that Woody Allen's grandma does not live in. It's probably not alive. One thing, and then does not live in Sicily. So. Yeah, absolutely. So they're they're chilling in the in the movie theater watching. Um, here's what's funny: they're watching a black and white movie and kind of talking about filmmaking and using some very film theorist uh, big words. You know, mm-hmm. um, what does she say? She's talking about. Um, Ingmar Bergman, and she says, his films are not mere quietest exercises any more than their pat expressions of radical subjectivism. So just like lots of... Um, what does that even mean? I, I mean, pseudo-intellectual. Really? <laughs> okay, I didn't know if that actually meant something. I was uh, like, oh, I'm just an idiot. I'm not even going to like take the time to try to like, <laughs> understand that. Okay. <laughs> but um, this is what's interesting. I, they don't directly say that what they're watching is a Bergman movie. So they're just talking about Bergman. But I got the sense that they're like, they're watching the movie and they're commenting on the movie mm-hmm. as if Bergman directed it, which he didn't. This film is, uh, it's called, I think it's called Ordet. You see the poster for it when Ed walks out of the theater. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen, you know, the clips that are shown in this episode and um, some images online and the, the movie poster online and in this episode. And, and that movie um, was directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. It's not at all associated with Bergman. Hmm. I don't know if that was like a, did they just Did misremember they not have the that? Or Maybe they didn't have the rights to show a, uh, a Ingmar Bergman film. But I mean, what's funny is like, I feel like the showrunners and the writers and the people involved in this show are huge film buffs. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would want, I don't think they would feel right to show a clip from one movie and be like, oh yeah, that's a Bergman movie. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. I naturally presumed it was a Bergman film because they what, were talking about it. I was like, what? They wouldn't do that to him. I knew, like, I was like, oh yeah, this feels so Bergman. This is like, yeah, this is cool. They're watching a Bergman movie. But then whenever Ed stepped out of the theater, I saw the title of the film. I'm like, wait, I've never heard of a Bergman film that was called or debt. But um, let's get back to their conversation. What are they talking about in this theater? Yeah. They're talking about us being monkeys with car keys. Yeah, I like that phrase. He's like, you know, we humans are basically uh, monkeys with car keys. So what Grandma Woody is sort of hammering in is the idea, the, the idea that they're exploring in the scene is that perhaps a great filmmaker is not um, driven by perfectionism, but rather obsessive compulsion. I guess that they could, you could be speaking about any type of artist. It's like it's not trying to perfect something, which is, um, you know, Ed has made something that he's trying to get right and he can't get it right. Um, rather, the idea that drives artists, at least in this idea that they're exploring, the, what drives an artist is um, just obsessively, continually working, like either having this compulsion to make art or always outputting new work, I guess. Yeah, I love that. And I also love when Grandma Woody is talking about how Ed shouldn't be trying to emulate yeah. Woody Allen, and he shouldn't be trying to emulate these other great filmmakers. He needs to come into his own voice. Super reminiscent of, um, gosh, what episode is that? Is it Sex, Lies, and Ed's Tape, where Ed is having breakfast with Joel? 
And they're talking about, you know, think about Woody Allen. He makes movies about what he knows, like white people yeah. that are Jewish and they live in New York. Mm-hmm. That is exactly it. And revisiting that premise, which seems to be something that bothers Ed a lot, that he mm-hmm. cannot come to terms as being uh, as great as these filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly trying to compare to get, himself or to yeah, emulate them. To, you know, literally be in their shadows. All this reminds me of is Conan O'Brien's Dartmouth commencement speech. Dude, Have you we've got a that? lot of Conan O'Brien references this se- season. <laughs> I know. I love the guy. Um, no, this sounds familiar. So what's the quote? Oh, there's a quote that Conan says, and let's just play the soundbite. Way back in the 1940s, there was a very, very funny man named Jack Benny. He was a giant star, easily one of the greatest comedians of his generation. And a much younger man named Johnny Carson wanted very much to be Jack Benny. In some, way he's, in some ways he was, but in many ways he wasn't. He emulated Jack Benny, but his own quirks and mannerisms, along with the changing medium, pulled him in a different direction. And yet, his failure to completely become his hero made him the funniest person of his generation. David Letterman wanted to be Johnny Carson, and was not. And as a result, my generation of comedians wanted to be David Letterman. And none of us are. My peers and I have all missed that mark in a thousand different ways. But the point is this, it is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy, but if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. Yeah, it's like a very inspiring and um, uplifting idea to kind of hold fast to if you're ever doubting yourself. But if you think about it, yeah, these great filmmakers have done something great in such a way, sometimes they're, they're perfect. And so why would you try to try to remake something if it's already there? You know? Yeah, exactly. There's Which, no point. You we know, all fall into that pitfall though. I, I feel the same way too. I mean, there's remakes of movies that that's, that are making millions and millions of dollars every <laughs> week, you know, in Hollywood, unfortunately. Um, that's just kind of how... I guess the money works. Yeah. So I think that the grand theme of this entire episode, I would say, is that you need to be able to trust in yourself and to create a product that is true to you Mm. or believe in you. So if we tie it all the way up to the beginning, we see that Joel and Maurice aren't trusted by various animals, ostriches and dogs. And the way we interpreted, at least the way I interpreted it, was that they weren't being true to themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see that Ed is also just trying to emulate these great filmmakers. But the theme of this entire episode is that you have to be able to define your own path and your own voice. Yeah. Uh, even if you are trying to emulate these great people, when you try to do that, you ultimately come out as your own flavor. And that is something that Ed realizes, but Joel and Maurice do not wholly understand at this point, which is why they're not able... They're scratching at the, the door. You know, they're yeah, almost there. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah, that definitely helps me appreciate that scene when Joel and Maurice are kind of dancing around the idea um, a little more. It kind of fits more into the theme now. So I take back what I said about <laughs> criticizing the episode about being a little all over the place. It's, it's, um, it's gathered in a way. We kind of touched on it briefly, this conversation with Grandma Woody. She's saying, think of, um, think of making a movie, a f- your, your movie, as, uh, as like a documentary. And if you do it, if you think of it that way, you can't go wrong. Like, like a nature documentary, you know, people are just monkeys with car keys. All a filmmaker can do is show what it's like to be alive at a certain place in time. And then when Ed walks out of the movie theater, he sort of you know, does the thing where you like put your hands up and sort of frame a a frame in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. And he's approaching Sicily as if um, he's documenting Sicily. He sees Maurice and Marilyn walking down the street and he's just kind of like trying to capture things as they exist without trying to put too much authorial intent behind it. Yeah. Was there something special about the way that scene was filmed? Because I really liked it. The way Ed held his fingers up to resemble a camera, which is cliche, but the way that it was filmed, it looked a little bit more closer up. Am I just reading too much into this or was there a special way that that was filmed? Hmm. If I, maybe I'm, maybe I can help clarify if we're thinking about the same thing, but that conversation um, that Marilyn and Maurice are having, I feel like it's photographed on a lot of telephoto lenses. Mm-hmm. So it gives you the sense of being an outside objective um, viewer. You know, it's, uh, it, it seems like it's um, that telephoto lens gives the idea of uh, a point of view from, you know, from uh, Ed's point of view. Mm-hmm. 
and gives like you're you're watching the conversation from the outside. And when you watch a movie, you're sitting in a theater looking at a screen. You know, you're outside of the movie mm-hmm. looking in through that window. So maybe that's kind of what you're the sense that you're getting from that. Yeah, maybe that was it. Because I did distinctly remember feeling exactly what you just described. Where yeah, I the could converse- see it from Ed's perspective. Yeah, it's like it, we don't see it as if it's a scene between Marilyn and Maurice, which it is, but we don't see it like that. We see it as. We're, out, we're existing outside of the scene looking in. Mm, okay. Great job for the director doing it that way. Yeah. Shout out to <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia for telling Wikipedia. me the name of the IMDb. director. Uh, Nick Mark. And we should uh, go ahead and give credit to Robin Green. She's one of the producers of the show and one of the writers who... She also wrote the last episode. Oh, she's, okay. a vi- she's a recurring player. She's a big writer on the show. Um, let's see if she's done some stuff in the past seasons. She did Goodbye to All That, the season two premiere, which we all love. She co-wrote War and Peace, and she... That's it. Those are all the writing credits so far. Okay, so far. More to come. So there's a scene where Ed is walking down the street with the camera, but it's pointed down. Yeah, he's like looking at his feet, I guess. Yeah, is that an homage to a film? I feel it is. Ooh, there must be, but man, you caught me off guard. I don't. Nothing comes to mind, but it definitely feels uh, like it's been done before. Yeah, maybe. that's what I felt too. Is like that looks like it's been done in some famous Criterion Collection film. <laughs> well, um, I guess we could kind of talk about the movie that that uh, Ed made because mm-hmm. that is part of that is a portion of the movie. It's a lot of uh, following his feet, walking around Sicily, and then the camera will pan up, and he, you know what do we see in Sicily? The movie I believe is called Sicily. Right, Sicily, a film yeah, by Ed I, think, I believe it's called that too. And it's pretty cool. It's a lot of it's black and white. It's all narrated. We don't really hear any of the sounds of the picture, like what's happening in the in the video. But we we get Ed sort of narrating it, and like you said, it's kind of a sweet, caring look at life in Sicily. Uh, we get an update to the population. A baby is born. There's mm-hmm. like a little... 840 people. Yeah, a little, some footage of that. And uh, what does Ed say? He says, you know, population probably like what, 839? And then the next shot is a shot of a baby. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, 840. And, you know, um, there's, what does he say? There's a gas station, a barber shop, Hollings Bar, a general store. Oh, I love the title cards. Oh yeah, it's like on a on a mailbox. On a mailbox, and then like you shift from behind the mailbox, and there's more names written on it, and then he opens the mailbox, and there's more. And it's uh, I think it's specifically written for uh, Joel Fleischman. It's like and Doctor Joel Fleischman. He says special thanks to you know like Marty, Woody, you know all those people, and then when he opens the mailbox, Joel Fleischman. Yeah, and you know we get throughout this um, viewing of the film, we get shots of different townsfolk and how the movie affects them. There's a, a little visual sequence when we're seeing Maggie play with the dog and Ed recounts, or he says something like, you know, pe- sometimes people come to Sicily and sometimes they go, and, and that's signifying, uh, you know, Rick passed away. Mm-hmm. We get the shot of Maggie. She's, got, she's sort of tearing up, you know, it's affecting her. And um, the way this ends is uh, I think Ed is sort of walking along sort of like a those kind of railroad tracks that go above water, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is always, it's a very cool setting. And the the line that he finishes with is, you want to wake up each morning just to find out what will happen today. And then we cut to the you know, the black title card. And yeah, I mean, what'd you think of, uh, of Ed's film? I thought it was really sweet and it was... I don't mean this in any negative manner. Yeah. Uh, it was very amateurish, but amateurish where it's off to a good path like the foundation is here you're just now getting it and you're going to do great things if you continue down that path and there's something about amateur filmmaking that is um magnificent like it's unique in that you know if you haven't made a bunch of films or if you haven't learned like i didn't go to film school i just picked up a camera and started making a movie Mm -hmm. it's a it's a movie that you'll never see it's it's, it doesn't it's a movie that doesn't really compare to the other ones in a good way like it's so unique and um personal and it's just not influenced by, you know, common visual language that you might learn from watching a lot of movies or making a lot of movies. Yeah. I think that the reason that I had thought of that immediately, why I thought that it was heading to the right direction is that it ends with him, like you were saying, on the train tracks. And I believe if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, that train tracks in literature symbolize like direction and path, oh, like where okay. to go. Like that is your crossroads. 
So you yeah. must now pick your follow direction. The, follow yeah. direction. Yeah, and it's a really easy literary symbol to read, like water and mm-hmm. rain. That's a really easy one to read. But you're at least off in the right direction. If you can't even write that, then you're not <laughs> off in a, you know, yeah. your foundation of your house isn't great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited. We finally, I don't know if we've ever really seen Ed's movies before. I mean, he has uh, camera operated for the documentary. You saw mm-hmm. a little bit of that in, uh, what episode was that? Oh, it was early on. I want to say it was like episode four. Soapy Sanderson, yeah. Soapy Sanderson. Is Man, that episode three? So much happens in Soapy Sanderson. That's a really fantastic episode. Um, and, you know, we get some of uh, Ed's daydreams when he's like making these movies uh, in Sex, Lies, and Ed's tape. But yeah, we finally get to see Ed's film. And uh, again, like I can't wait to show you the deleted scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so now is time to toss to Brent. We kind of introduced him earlier in the episode. Um, so yeah, it's just without further ado, let's see what he's got to say. Hey, this is Brent Benoit. Thanks for allowing me to comment on this episode of Northern Exposure. It is Animals Are Us, I believe. And, uh, as usual in this, uh, fantastical world, Sicily, Alaska, we are given juxtaposition of characters, oftentimes the young characters such as Ed, uh, have more in common with someone like Peg Phillips' character, Ruth Ann. And uh, someone of her generation, like Maurice, of course, is uh, met with disdain the minute he walks through the door of her store, played so well by Barry Corbin, someone who seems to understand the world and how to manipulate it, but doesn't understand his role in it as far as the way he's perceived by, in this episode, animals, and also the people around him, as well as Joel Fleischman. This is a the overall the episode was really good. I like the the search for um, Ed's voice. Another thing that was played with a lot that was kind of neat was the delving into um, that line between reality and fantasy. Uh, Ed has, of course, uh, is visited by Doctor Fleischman to encourage him to to uh, work on his film. And uh, towards the, the middle of the episode, he proceeds to discuss how. Uh, He's pen pals with uh, Martin Scorsese, and that he, uh, you know, has uh, relics from the movie set of uh, Spielberg, and you know all these things. So uh, Fleischman clearly looks like this guy's nuts, and leaves feeling that he's delusional. Delusion is a huge theme in this episode. Maggie O'Connell's character, played by Janine Turner is considered delusional because she believes her husband has come, or not rather her husband, her ex-boyfriend Rick, one of the many uh, boyfriends who's died in her uh, tenure as a girlfriend, has returned. And what's neat about this episode is that, you know, one thing that I like about Northern Exposure is there's never in, um, there's references to, I think it's realistic subjectivism, and that's in uh, Ed's film, and that's also what this episode's about. There's not an attempt to clarify, uh, is this really... um, a reincarnated boyfriend, or in fact, does Ed really have a relationship with uh, Woody Allen's mother and get a, a film advice from her? She never walks out of the theater in the episode, obviously, which doesn't mean that she's not still in there and didn't leave early. It's the, and, and those sort of like nuanced choices that, that were made on the show are kind of what makes you uh, really enjoy it. You think you know where they're going with it, and then they don't necessarily give you an answer. It speaks to sort of the mystical element of uh, the Northwestern native culture that I think is sort of um, highlighted in, in this episode. Last thing I'd like to say, my favorite line was without a doubt, the um, monkeys, uh, we're just monkeys with car, uh, with car keys. Uh, I can't remember who said that, but I think it may have been uh, Ruth Ann. Just a great line and sort of uh, very zen way of describing the whole episode, but definitely a good one. Uh, enjoyed Ed's film at the end, and thanks for letting me comment. Yeah, I think sort of a major thing that Brent is touching on here is that he mentions the delusional aspect of of uh, you know Maggie and is Rick a dog? Um, is Ed really having a conversation with Woody Allen's grandmother? Um, maybe not delusional, but but sort of like. Um, outside of reality, you know, this, that this, this, this place that this show takes us so often. And, you know, we're just monkeys with car keys. That's a great line. You know, Brent, he was saying he couldn't remember if it was Grandma Woody that said it or if it was Ruth Ann. But that actually kind of made me think, you know, that scene could have just as easily played out with Ruth Ann instead of Grandma Woody sitting in the theater 
Because it's something, that's a line that I could hear Ruth Ann saying, you know, that wisdom. And Ruth Ann has already um, displayed her, her knowledge and her expertise of foreign films and, you know, classic cinema. Because in the, in the first scene where she's having that conversation with Ed, we see, I think Brent mentioned this, like some of the young and youthful characters have a lot in common with some of the older characters. That, that's kind of the beauty of, of Sicily. I completely agree. I love his analysis of saying that delusion is the theme. And I think that maybe it isn't so far like straight delusion. Like mm-hmm. like you said, yeah. it was living outside of reality. And that is the place where they eat at. That is their place of business, is yeah. being out of reality. And I agree. I think that could have been Ruth Ann's character easily as much as Grandma Woody's character. But I like that, 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 it's, that line. But it's cool that it's Grandma Woody because we get to step out of reality, I yeah, guess. Yeah, you got to at least have like <laughs> the quota of three for each Northern Exposure <laughs> episode right there. I didn't pick up on the juxtaposition between young and old people. And it was a really great analysis from him mm-hmm. that compares Maurice and Maryland, yeah. uh, young and old, along with obviously Ed and Ruthann and uh, to a degree Ed and Joel. Joel is yeah. a little bit of an mm-hmm. elderly uh, person. And if we stretch this even further, Maggie and the dog sends Maggie out. <laughs> do- wait, how much is dog wait, use? Actually, you know? <laughs> hang on, look, it's flipped. Never mind. The dog is order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he brings out a really good point that you need to be able to compare between the two and where they're able to perceive how things should be done and how they are be able to perceive how things are done. So mm-hmm. in the instance of Marilyn and Maurice, I think we're kind of cited in Marilyn's decision where like as the older you get, maybe you're more driven by greed or more <laughs> driven by capitalistic tendencies. Okay, yeah. Uh, and Marilyn isn't a right. Whereas in the Ed and Joel situation, Ed is playing the, if we use an expression from our past episode, the May and Joel is playing the, the December. December. He's like a protege maybe. Is that what you're trying to get out? Yeah, like a student? The student one, the younger inexperienced person. Joel was in a right. He's able to show that his wisdom of being able to tell Ed that he needs to be able to making movies with his own voice is the proper path rather than trying to mimic other filmmakers. So that was a really great point by Brent. Yeah. And he also touches on something that it's very hard to describe in words, but I think he kind of, he he says it pretty eloquently, but it's that thing we always keep talking about. Like uh, Brent says, you think they know where they're going with it but they don't really give you the answer. And that's what the show does a lot. I think sometimes we say like they subvert your expectations or that it's really that things, this show has a very quiet way of resolving um, a plot line. And we will get these very quiet human moments that aren't, like you said in in a previous episode, Charles, it's not like a yelling match between two people and that's how they uh, reach their sort of climax and their resolution. It's kind of these... Um, anticlimaxes. Yeah, I actually literally wrote down the same phrase you did. I felt that could have been on the DVD box art. You think you know where they're going? Dot dot dot, and you like flip the DVD over, and it's just like the other side. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's kind of puts it uh puts it squarely, and that's really kind of what there. That's there's some weird quality about the show, whether it's uh, takes you out of reality, or we can see how the characters really gel with each other, young and old. Or, you know, just the way they they handle dramatic storytelling, you know, the ups and downs there. Well, that does it for Animals Are Us. Uh, next week is episode five of season three, Jules et Joel. Oh, wait, I just got the oh. name of the episode. I finally just got it. Oh, animals good. are us. Yeah, we are yeah. animals. We are monkeys Rick is a dog. with car monkeys keys. Are, oh okay. My God. okay, I finally got it. All right, thanks for saying the name right. of the episode out loud again. Listeners who are... <laughs> who are still with us. Thank you for not screaming and, and immediately writing into the <laughs> podcast. You can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. So hopefully you haven't already written uh, <laughs> a very, very angry <laughs> Come on, vitriol filled email. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the next episode is Jules et Joel. Um, it came out, okay, a little bit of a spoiler. We'll talk about it next episode. Not a huge spoiler, but the episode was uh, first aired on October 28th, 1991, which is uh, oddly close to Halloween. This is a Halloween episode we have coming up next. I have so many thoughts on that. So get your like trick-or-treater, get your costume, get your candies. Uh, What are your thoughts? Uh, We haven't seen a holiday-themed episode, and that is what I live for. Have we seen any Christmas? Have we seen any Thanksgiving? I live with those TV episodes. I love holiday themes. <laughs> I love episodes. Halloween episodes. And yeah, I love Christmas episodes. Yeah, they're so good. Well, hopefully this one lives up to your expectations. Charles, I'll see you next week. Yeah, I'll see you next week, Lee. 
Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Brent for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. There's no way to think, my friend. Life is precious. Life is good. Is it? The sunrise, the sunset, the ring a cold glass of water leaves on the tabletop, the smell of the first moose burger sizzling on the grill. It's all the same to me. Same faces, same conversation. I know what people are going to say before they open their mouth. You don't mean that. Work, eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep. I see it all stretched out in front of me like some endless Bodhidharma meditation. Oh, yeah, I could go somewhere else. New York, Paris, start over. Things would be good for a while, too. Then what, huh? Move on again? What's the point? Aren't you forgetting one thing? What's that? Love. Love. Oh, I envy your simple nature. You're tired, my friend, and you've had too much to drink. You'll feel better in the morning. Yes. Morning. Cut! That was excellent! Whew! Man. Thank you, gentlemen. I think we should move in for coverage now.